0: Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, you can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, The Spirit Enables You to Please God. Those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, Lord, when our Lord Jesus turned the water into wine, Lord, your word tells us that he displayed his glory and the disciples believed. Father, we see that when you show us your ways, when you reveal your character and what you are doing, when you reveal your power, you're, you're showing us your glory And so, Father, what we ask this morning is that when you show us the truths in your word, you show us who you are, what you have done in Christ, what you are doing for us who are following Christ. Lord, as you show us your ways, God, that we would comprehend your glory we would understand you, we would come to know you. And Lord, I pray that as you do this, you would transform us, Lord, you would stir the worship of our souls, that Lord, just from the, the, the bottom of our depth. So God, we would worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, that this would then flow into a life of living to obey you, a, a pattern of walking with you, holiness of character, service to your kingdom, making the gospel known. Father, bring about all of it, Lord, by transformation that comes right now. Lord, it's just overwhelming when we consider the awesome task that happens right here in these times when we open your word. And so, Father, I pray that you will give us grace for everything that's going to need to happen in order for those things to come about in this time. Father, give me help. I I want to teach your word faithfully, truthfully, just show your truth. So help me to do that. Help all of us, oh God, as we're drawing near to worship by bowing before you and receiving your word. And I pray, God, we will respond rightly. Bring about salvation of souls in this time, Lord, we pray as well. So please, Lord, lead us to your truth. Give us help and we pray this through Christ. Amen. Well, our church family has two households, two families that are preparing to go to the nations with the gospel and both of them have been disappointed by delays of when they can leave. But their disappointment in wanting to be there right now, anxious to be there and having to wait just just another testimony to their love for the gospel, their desire for their lives to be useful, their lives to count in the great plan of God, their desire to please him. There's not a square inch over the cosmos over which the Lord Jesus does not cry, mine. It's his. He made it. It all exists and holds together Through him it exists for his glory and at the end when it's all consummated, everything is in some way going to glorify him. The winds and the waves obey him and one day all the nations will as well. God is fulfilling his purposes, purposes that not only take up history but prehistory. Before even the foundations of the earth were laid, God has set about to bring his purposes to unfold. And all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every people are going to hear the gospel. He's going to draw souls to himself. Jesus is going to build his church from every people group on the earth, from Scotland to Ferdinand to the deep, deep jungles where Brady and Jessica are intending to go. Yesterday afternoon got the chance to spend a little time with Brady and Jessica. They just this past week, you know, as a church, we were praying for them. They had a week of interviews and they were sharing some about what had been going on. and with great excitement, they were sharing and bringing out maps and pointing to these rivers and, and deep, deep places into the jungle. No roads. The only way to get there is by long treks of canoe back these rivers and just to hear their passion of of knowing there are tribes without the gospel and longing to bring them, longing to bring the gospel to these people groups with the understanding that every tribe he's bringing about souls to be saved from each one of them. It's an awesome thought to think about it. And then, you know, just couldn't help it because we're in this passage and studying what we are and seeing the work of the Holy Spirit just couldn't help but think about the mysterious ways that God works. In that his spirit moves believers to have desire to go to this obscure place in the deep, deep, deep jungle because God wants to bring souls to faith there. So he's stirring in the hearts of believers, then going to stir in the hearts of hearers, all for the purpose of bringing about the building of the church and accomplishing what he is planning to do. Every bit of it is a demonstration of what God is about and his spirit is leading and directing. We left off last week in Romans eight with, with this word. We're seeing that God gives his Holy Spirit to his people. And we've asked the question, all right, what's the point? What is he doing? Where we left last week is that God has given his spirit to his people in, who abides with us and lives in us in order to enable us and empower us not to do what we want to do, but to lead us into the purposes of God. He has a plan that he's bringing about. He sends his spirit to us in order to quicken and awaken and all these ways that we talked about his work. But the point is not that the spirit comes to us so that we'll become better athletes, Or build our fleeting castles in the sand. Get the promotions that we hope for. The spirit of God comes to us to lead us to the purposes of God, that we would reorient our lives, our ambitions, our desires, that there would be a new disposition, a new bent, a new way of thinking leading us into the purposes of God so that we can live out the very reason why our cells were formed. Another way to say all of that is that the Spirit enables us to please God in in the various ways that God wants to get glory from us. The Spirit enables us to please God as we grow in holiness, as we die to more sin, as we increase in obedience, as well as when he stirs us to want to serve and then when we serve for there to be some fruit that comes from those things, every way that he is leading and stirring and pushing us is to the end that we would please God, which is something we were unable to do before we were born again, before we turned to Christ. Part of our human condition We're weaker than we think we are. Apart from Christ, not only do we not desire to please God, we're just incapable of it. We can't. It's, it's, It's out of our reach. The hardness of heart, the selfishness of our motives, where we were before Christ is a place that is unable to please God. The spirit comes, transformation takes place, and we are led and enabled to be able to do this. The Spirit enables us to do what we could not do before conversion. So I mentioned last week that uh, in the overall uh, points of Romans 8, we've entered point number two, the second part of this section here, which is the Spirit sanctifies us, getting us ready for glorification. And we mentioned that there are nine ways that we're shown the Holy Spirit works in us nine works that he is doing. And so this morning we're ready to begin the first of those. And again, as we've been seeing over and over, there's kind of a a logical argument within the overall logical argument. He's going to take us through a series of steps to help us think about, to help us understand when we ask the question, all right, What difference does it make that we have the Holy Spirit? He's going to walk us through some reasoning to show us the difference that it makes. And so specifically, we're going to be looking at verses five through eight this morning. So let's get into this first one. The first work of the Spirit is the Spirit changes the course of our life. The Spirit changes the course of our life. As you look down through the verses, you'll notice this kind of back and forth that that is being shown to us between those who are in the flesh versus those who are in the spirit. So here's kind of the big picture stuff that's happening. So this is kind of overview of five through eight. If we ask the question, what difference does it make to have the spirit? So take the believer, has the Holy Spirit, brand new Christian, day one, and he comes and he says, okay, I see the Bible says that. What's the benefit? Why is it a good thing to have the Holy Spirit abiding with me? So what difference would this make versus say even the nice church attender? It happens that there are those who like the church, enjoy what's going on, enjoy a little spirituality, but don't buy into this whole gotta be saved thing that sounds a little out there, sounds a little crazy. So I'm not buying this whole, I got to be saved thing. I think I'm fine. I'm a good person, but I like the whole church there. So what difference does it make from the believer who has the spirit of God abiding with him versus the church attender who's nice and kind, but has not bowed the knee to Christ in order to be saved? What change does he bring? Well, this section, what it does is it paints a picture of contrast. And so back and forth, what it'll keep doing is here is what it is like for the man, the woman who is outside of Christ in the flesh, does not have the spirit. And now here's what it means to have the spirit. And so we're going to be talking a lot today about the flesh. But the reason that we're doing it is because when we understand the condition of the flesh, so you who have responded to the gospel, you have turned to Christ for salvation and are actively following him. Here is where we were before we turned to Christ. But if you're here this morning and you have not turned to Christ, this is where you still are. This condition of being in the flesh separated from God. So we're gonna look at this, what it means to be in the flesh, and then we will be shown the contrast of, here is what life is like in the spirit. And so the difference that's there, this is what the Holy Spirit is bringing about. So when we see a change of disposition, a change of bent, a change of the way of thinking, what the text is showing is here's what he is doing. Here's the work he is accomplishing in us. So so don't lose sight of the bigger picture when we do all of this talking about the flesh and we think through what that means. It's all part of the purpose of seeing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit, using many different methods and many different ways. And that's the subject for like another sermon for another day. All right, he's working, but how is he doing it? Because, you know, we a lot of times think about those uncanny moments. You know, every Christian has them occasionally. That uncanny moment where something happened and it's just like obviously a work of God and it's invisible, but something happened. We know that that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we often talk about that. But one of the things that the Bible shows is that he is also at work in the things that look mundane. He's also at work at times like it's after church. You're having a conversation with a fellow believer and the words you needed to hear, somebody says, and they maybe even stumbled over their words and weren't real skilled in saying it, but it's what you needed to hear. The Bible also shows that's the work of the spirit. That he's working in both visible and invisible ways. He's doing it in the uncanny ways that we like and we celebrate, but he's also doing it in the mundane. He's also at work tomorrow morning whenever you wake up 20 minutes before work or earlier than we normally do. You open up the Bible, you read, and you're grown a millimeter. That's the work of the Spirit as well. In many methods, in many different ways, he is at work But what is he accomplishing? That's what we're going to be looking at in this contrast here. So let's start working through the verses. Begin with me in verse five. Read it again. For those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. Now, before we get into the meaning of what it, what it is getting to, we got to understand the phrases that he's using here. So what does it mean when he says those who are according to the flesh or according to be, to the spirit, to be according to something? What this is talking about is uh, the basic principle at the bottom of the, of the root So the the man in the flesh is the man who has not, you know, okay, repented of his sins. He is separated from Christ. He has not turned to Christ, has not been awakened, is not justified. And the text could have just said the man in the flesh, but there's a reason why it's worded the way that it is. And the reason why is because there's there's a title that is given, but it's a title that is also a description of who the man, the woman is. What this, what this language of what you are according to, another way of saying it is, this is who you are in your chief identity. When the angels look at you and have, you know, perfect understanding, they will, they see clearly this is someone in the flesh. This is someone in the spirit. It's what you are now. Um, I wanna say this like carefully and and, and these kinds of things. The ESV, if you've got that in your lap, um, it uses the word live there. Um, I I don't think that's the most helpful way to translate what's going on there. The word live is not in the Greek. It was added to try to help you understand, but I I disagree with the direction that they're going with it there in that interpretation. Okay, because in the Greek, the way the New American Standard, and I didn't check all the others, some of those interpret this passage though It's the word are, it's that verb to be. So it's not just saying that those who are living in a pattern will get to that. But there's an argument that he's going to say that first you begin with who you are. And then who you are results in a pattern of life, a lifestyle, a behavior that comes about. And so what the text says is this part about uh, according, if you are according to the flesh, this is who you are. If you are according to the spirit, you are a man of the spirit, a woman of the spirit and who you are is going to lead to behavior patterns and lifestyle that's coming about. So uh, we used the illustration last week of a bodybuilder. You call somebody a bodybuilder. It's a title, but it's more than a title. You're describing something about their life. A bodybuilder is somebody who builds the body. And likewise, a Christian, it is something we call someone or ourselves, but it should not be just a title. It should be a description of the life. Someone who bows to, worships, obeys, submits, follows the Lord Jesus. That's a Christian. Well, that's similar to what is being said here. To be according to the flesh, MacArthur calls this a person's fundamental essence, bent, or disposition. Okay? What is your fundamental essence? What is your fundamental disposition? Do you lean away from God? Or because of the work of God and the work of the spirit, and you know, I think we're going to see an illustration would be the spirit is leaning on you to, to take you over that degree to lean towards God, to be according to the flesh is to have a disposition that is leaning away from God. I don't trust him or I got a God I believe in, but it is not the God revealed in scripture. It's the God that I say he has to exist and he does what I tell him to. He agrees with what I say and he doesn't like the people that I don't like. Do you lean away from him or is there a leaning towards him? That is what is meant here. The fundamental bent. It is what describes your nature your fundamental disposition. Are you in Christ or are you in the flesh? If you are in Christ, then another way of saying it is that you are someone who is according to the spirit because at the moment of justification, the moment of responding and coming to God for real in the way that he says, you receive his spirit to come and abide with you always and live within you. So then look at what follows. Those who are according to the flesh, this is their fundamental essence. Look at how their life can then be described. Look at the bit that it produces. They set their minds on the things of the flesh. And likewise, those who are in the spirit, the things of the spirit, the disposition leads to the pattern of life. Who you are, who you are in relation to God determines the road you're going to walk down. Okay, let's say a parent came to you for some parenting advice. Let's say a a mom walked up to you and started to talk and said, my kid, he's so irresponsible. I mean, he spills drinks and he doesn't clean his room. And you glance over and you say, he looks kind of short. How old is he? And the mom goes, well, he's, he's two. Okay, you might respond with something like, you know, depending on your smart aleck tone or not, you might respond with something like, well, he's two. Well, what do you mean by that? Okay, you haven't said anything like, (laughs) like way to go genius, all you did was point out the obvious, he's two. What you mean is, the nature of a toddler is to be irresponsible. He's two, what do you expect? What you're getting at is who he is, is resulting in a pattern of life, or sometimes you know when uh, husbands and wives, couples get together, and they all get to talking, and sometimes they get to joking and complaining about one another. We do it. Uh, sometimes there have been there's been more than one occasion that a, a wife has complained to the group of something like my husband he he likes to do the craziest of stuff. He he likes to go on adventures. He likes to cliff jump. He likes to shoot guns and, you know, take risk and all these kinds of things. And the response that I have given in some of those situations is, well, you wanted a man, didn't you? Okay. And what I mean is you get a man, there's some man stuff that comes. Okay. Who he is, is going to determine the pattern of his life. There is a disposition that leads to a pattern. Well, listen, sometimes the Bible addresses this whole disposition thing to say that there are dispositions we need to fight against. You and I as sinners have a disposition towards sin. We are to fight that. But what this passage is showing here is it's just explaining reality. It's just explaining reality. Why do Christians have their minds set on the things of the spirit? Because they're indwelt by the spirit of God. And why do those outside of Christ have their minds set on things of the flesh? Because they do not have the spirit of God leaning them towards him. They are on their own because they have chosen to stay on their own in resistance to God. So now we are being shown the first thing about the work of the spirit. The believer who is according to the spirit, here's, a, here's something it produces. He sets his mind on the things of the spirit. So you Christian, if you ask the question, what difference does it make to have the Holy Spirit? Here's the first thing. It seems very simple until we would consider where we would be without him. He is helping you to set your mind on the things of the spirit. There is a new disposition that is introduced to the believer. A new bent now exists. There has come a change to the fundamental essence of who you are. There's somebody else living inside of you that's going to change some things. And when he is living inside of you, there is a leaning on us that he does in order to lean us towards Christ. So, it says those according to the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit and likewise the flesh. So what does it mean to have your minds set on something? This is a way of describing your dominant way of thinking. So internally, what do you think about? What do you love? How do you make decisions? What is the goal of your life? Why do you do what you do? When you wake up in the morning and you're setting out for a day, what is, what is the motive that is driving you? What is the dominant intent of the heart that is driving your life? What is your great goal? If somebody asked you and it wasn't in church so that you didn't feel like you had to give a certain spiritual answer, what are you about? What is your great goal in life? What is that all the way to the heart? If you were to look over to Philippians chapter three, verses 18 and 19, you can jot that down. One of the things that it mentions is Paul gives a warning to the church that's there uh, to be on guard against false teachers. And then he goes on to describe several of the things that you can see about them. One of the last things he says is their minds are set on earthly things. The soul apart from Christ, the man of the flesh has his mind set on the flesh and is driven by earthly motives, fleshly motives, things of the flesh, pleasures of the flesh, the great driving motive we had before Christ was be happy, be happy. Now, the Christian also thinks be happy, but we're thinking unsurpassed everlasting joy. But be happy now, make my flesh happy, give my flesh what it wants. That's the motive that drives. So then the contrast, the mindset on the spirit, the dominant way of thinking is influenced by the spirit. This doesn't mean that Christians don't have fleshly thoughts. Of course not. So if you're sitting there thinking like, oh boy, I'm in trouble. Of course, a great battle of the flesh is constantly warring with the minds. We're told to take every thought captive. Okay, we have to do that work of like, forcing myself not to think on that tempting thought. There is the internal wrestling. There are other passages of scripture that tell us instructions, commands to go set our minds on what is above whatever is true and glorious. We are to fix our minds on scripture says other passages give us those commands, but you notice this passage is not giving commands and instructions. It's explaining what has and is happening in the work of God sanctifying souls. This passage is telling us what the spirit is doing in the life of the believer. The believer will be led to set his, her mind on the things of the spirit. So it's not that we don't have fleshly thoughts, but what is the dominant thought that determines the direction of your life for the for us outside of Christ it is make myself happy for the believer. We have someone dwelling inside of us who is pushing on us, introducing thoughts to the heart. And there is one dominant thought that is introduced to the heart and it becomes one that makes its way all the way down to the bottom of the root the core thought that determines everything that we do. And that thought is, I must please God. I must please God. If you are according to the spirit, he is leading you to set your mind on the things of the spirit. Now this will be in an increasing way, but part of the point the passage is showing here is he's going to do it. He's not going to fail. He's never going to save a Christian and he wasn't able to do the work he set out to do. He will lead the believer to set our minds on the things of the spirit and a dominant thought to exist. I must please God. We're going to come back to that. I must please God thing as it comes up again in verse eight at the end of our text today. Move on to verse six with me though. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and death peace. Notice again, you see what he's doing here, who you are results in a pattern and he's showing things that flow out of this. So you notice that he does not say that the mindset on the flesh is going to lead to death. No, he says it is death. Now it's possible, it's possible that what he means is the going to lead to part. But I think the point that he is making is the present tense. The mindset on the flesh is death. Because, you know, from various passages of scripture, like when Jesus would preach or Ephesians 2 teaching, the speaking to us who are in Christ, it says before we turn to Christ, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It is true that there is a coming death, eternal death. It's not eternal unconsciousness. It's not annihilation, but it is an eternal existence that is cut off from joy and that which is truly life. And so the Bible calls it the realm of death. What the Bible says is that if you are outside of Christ, if you have not come to him to bow the knee of submission, you are already dead. There is a sense in which you are dead. The body's functioning, but it's like, to use Jesus's illustration, it's like you're a branch but that's cut off from the vine and you're laying on the ground. There's enough remaining sap that's gonna keep you from withering for a little while, but you're cut off from life. And where you are going when the body passes is you are going to enter the realm of eternal death. What Jesus says is that those who do not believe on the son are under the wrath of God already. It's not just that there's going to be wrath. You are already under that. It is an appeal, a call for you to come and have life. Listen, I I know that like saying these kinds of things can come across as harsh and you can like form these opinions like, man, that church, they like to talk about negative things. We're just telling you what the Bible says. And as a part of it, it is an invitation. You can have life and peace, but it is only in Jesus you will not have life and peace anywhere else. You must come to him and he offers grace. Turn from rebellion where you're trusting yourself, doing your own thing. Bow the knee of submission to him. Trust Christ, call out to him. And the Bible says you will be saved. That can happen right now where you sit in the the next instant. But the mindset on the flesh is death and the mindset on the spirit is life. Christian, your body is decaying, but you are alive. Your tent, the tent's gonna wear out. The tent's gonna get hit with a storm. It's gonna rip to shreds. The tent's gonna wear out. But who you are is more than your body. When your tent passes, You will close your eyes in physical death, but open them up in the heavenly realm where the angels will immediately carry you to paradise where you will never be separated from the joy and life that you have in Christ. You are already alive, but not only is the mindset on the spirit life, but it is also peace. And if you remember from chapter 5, Uh, there are two kinds of peace that the Christian has. There's the objective and then the subjective. The objective peace is even on days when you don't feel good and you're doubting your salvation and you're maybe feeling shame and guilt over things and you're like, I just don't even know how I can be saved. If you're in Christ, you have peace with God. You are objectively right with God. And even if you don't feel like it, you're right with God. The subjective peace is when we feel it. And that's nice. The objective peace leads to the subjective peace, that peace that surpasses all comprehension, where you have that restful sigh of knowing there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this gives you delight. What the text is talking about here, I believe, is the objective peace. You're in the spirit, you have life, and you have peace with God. And then verse seven continues to tell us more because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. What we're told here is the man according to the flesh separated from Christ has a heart, has a disposition that is hostile to God. Now this is one of those statements from the Bible that maybe when you hear for the first time, or if you're still investigating the scriptures to see if you believe these things, that's one of those that can cause you to kind of catch your head a little bit and be like, I don't know about that one. So I want to consider it, think it through. The very first thing I'll just explain to you is when the Bible says something, it's true. We embrace it, we accept it. And then as we go later on down the line, there's a lot of times the light bulbs come on afterwards. It's kind of like, oh, okay, now I see how that is the case. This was one for me personally. But think it through, the Christian still has sin, still fights with his flesh, still battles rebellion, but at the root, the heart is leaning towards God and not, not leaning away from him in resistance. But what God says is that the one in the flesh is leaning away from him. There is a hostility. Think about maybe the teenage young man who just, Imagine one who just utterly despised his father. His father sits him down to uh, talk with him, to give him a talk about some trouble he had gotten in. And the the young man sits there and he's just got a snotty, disrespectful, rotten kind of countenance towards his father. And the father addresses it. He says, "Your, your, your attitude. And the young man responds with, hey, I'm not doing anything. And it's true that, yeah, outwardly, he's not breaking any rules at the moment. He's not out breaking commandments of the Father. But inwardly, there is an attitude of hostility towards the Father. Well, that would be kind of an extreme example. Hostility can come in various ways and in various degrees because the hostility that exists. It's not always a snotty kind of hostility where it's like obviously hostile. It can also come in some different kinds of ways. It can also just look like the really nice man and kind woman who doesn't appear to be openly hostile, but there is a refusal. There is a refusal to believe the God of the Bible. There is the insistence of making up the character of God that I think he should have. And I insist that God agree with what I say that he should be like. When we look at this, when you look at verse seven, one of the things that you notice, it's almost like scripture anticipated that some would have a question. The mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. W- what do you mean, God? Really? Like I know some nice and kind unbelievers who love their kids and love their wives. What what do you mean they're hostile? Let me explain. Look at the next phrase. For it does not, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. How is it hostile? It does not subject itself to the law of God and is not even able to do so. So when we see this. The great test is, is there true submission to the rule of God? Is there a subjection to the law of God? If you do enough evangelism, you will encounter conversations where someone objects to this. And and whenever you begin to bring up that if you remain outside of Christ, you're at a place that you're separated from God. You're not right with God. The Bible even says that there is a hatred that the natural man has towards God. And you'll hear the, nah, you know, I may not be saved. I don't agree with you on that, but I'm not hostile toward God. The thing to always look at there is to realize if he is the sovereign one who is worthy of all obedience, all worship, if refusal to even to worship God is cosmic treason and the Bible says it is, then a refusal to bow the knee and to subject itself to the law and the rule of God is an act of hostility, even if someone appears to be sincere while doing it. The attitude of the heart is one of resistance, It is one of refusing to bow the knee to God. And then that leads us right into verse eight. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's a devastating reality for the man who is not in Christ that he is incapable of pleasing God. Pleasing God is, it's another way of summarizing what the purpose of life is. So the Westminster Catechism answers this this question The very first question and answer that it gives, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is why your cells were formed. This is why God created all of the cosmos to glorify him. You exist to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Well, we could say that same phrase with a lot of different words, phrases. Here's another way of saying it that the Bible will employ numerous times. You exist to please God. We were made to please him. You exist for this. And those who are on their own. Those who are according to the flesh. Cannot do the thing they were created to do. Before we turned to Christ. We could not fulfill the reason that we were made. The way that the rest of the passage flows and unfolds itself is this, it's then to address us Christian and to say, like jumping down to verse nine, however, you believer are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then it begins to show the various ways that we are now able to please God. So so Christian, let this one settle in for a second here. It is a glorious thing that God has given you his own spirit to enable you to fulfill your very purpose of existence and you could not before that moment. God has redeemed not only your life from the grave, God has redeemed your purpose. God has brought you to a place that you are now finally freed up and enabled to do what you were made to do to worship and love him and obey him and serve him, to do deeds that are actually regarded as good, accepted by God as good. Now, let's continue to think through some of the hard parts of this, okay? Because here's another thought. You're telling me that an unbeliever, maybe even a church attender, but just who doesn't believe your whole saved thing, and he loves his wife or she loves her husband, loves their kids, feeds the poor. You're telling me that person can't please God. It's a hard statement, isn't it? Well, continue with me. Someone outside of Christ can do outwardly moral things, but the Bible shows is unable to do works or be holy in a way that is accepted by God as good. The question is, is God willing to accept deeds done with fleshly motives as truly good deeds? Well, scripture shows no. And when we are in the flesh, apart from the spirit of God, we are only capable of having fleshly motives. Uh, Logan taught this morning on the, uh, the account of Cain and Abel. And one of the things that comes out there illustrates this just perfectly Both Cain and Abel brought offerings of worship to God, but God accepted Abel's offering, but he rejected Cain's. He refused to accept Cain's offering as a good work. Cain performed an action that he was supposed to. On the surface, it looked good. I like Logan's illustration they used. He said, Adam and Eve might've looked out their window and saw both of their boys going to worship and thought what good boys we have. But God rejected Cain's offering. Why? Hebrews 11 tells us because he did not offer it in faith. It was the heart. It was the motives. Now the cynic might say, well, that just sounds like God's being awfully picky. What does that matter? All right, ladies. Let's pretend that your first anniversary comes. You're all excited. It's, it's, it's one year of marital bliss. You're all excited. Your husband comes home from work and there is no gift, no date, not even the statement of happy anniversary. Later that evening, your husband asks you what's wrong because there's something wrong. And you tell him. <laughs> a year passes and the second anniversary comes and your husband comes home from work. You look out that window and he has flowers. And let's just say, not just flowers, he has bought a pickup load of flowers. You see this and you begin to grin and you begin to smile. Oh, my wonderful husband. And then he walks in and with the snottiest sarcastic tone you have ever heard, he says, here's your flowers, princess. Hope you're happy now. Here's my question. Do you regard his deed as good? What does that prove? Motives matter. Motives matter. You couldn't see his heart when he first pulled in the driveway, but you interpreted it pretty well by the tone of his voice. God is able to see the heart even when someone appears to be sincere. And here is the point. The one outside of Christ without the spirit of God is one who is on their own. And on our own, we have a disposition that is hostile to God and refuses to bow the knee of complete submission, even when we would do what looked to be good things, And then so from that truth, where the text takes us in future works is to show us here is what the Christian has been enabled by God to do. If you look down in verses 10 and 11, the spirit gives us life. If you look down to verse 13, we are able to put sin to death in a way that is honoring to God because one of the things that scripture shows us for a work to truly be good Good in the eyes of God, and He's the judge and the only one that matters. It does not matter if the whole world is convinced your deed is good. God is the only one who matters. For a work to truly be good, it has to be done in faith that speaks to the motive, that speaks to the heart, and in the name of the Lord Jesus. That speaks with the intention and the end for which it is done to glorify God and please Him the christian is enabled to do deeds that are accepted by god as good now listen not because we're totally pure and the quality of our righteousness is just such that it is 100% pure there are principles at grace of grace still at play you and i christian are still very very weak so much so that verse 26 says the holy spirit has to help us pray We are not even able to pray with perfect perfection, but he helps us. He helps us. He's leaning on us. He is enabling us. He is empowering us in order to please God. So what application do we draw here? Well, you'll notice that in what we've looked at so far, there's not a single command There's not a single, now go do this kind of thing. Rather, I mean, that'll start next week, but so far what we're being shown is Christian, here are the changes that have come in your life. And when you look and you see good, you see fruit, you see progress, you see sins that used to have you, have a hold of you, and now you've been free of them, Here is what scripture is preaching to you. Glorify God and not yourself. Recognize this is the work of God. Recognize this is what he has done and is doing. Rejoice, but not in yourself. Worship God. And then look at the world. Look at the world, understanding and knowing these things. The Christian is able to look at the world and understand what is happening in a way but the rest are not because God is showing us what's happening. We're able to look at the world, see conflict and recognize there are demonic activities that are happening there. And we believers are able to look at the world and recognize where we see a gospel movement. We know the spirit is at work there where we see another soul saved. We recognize the spirit has been at work where we see Jesus building his church, where we see soul strategizing, how can I get into the schemes with the gospel? How can we get the gospel up this river into the deep, deep jungle? The spirit is at work moving his people to accomplish the mission of Jesus, build his church and we are to see and know it. And then to any of you who are here, and you are still outside of Christ. You have never come to him to be saved. Never turned to him, maybe in your mind, you're still thinking this whole, I'm surely I'm a good person, surely I'm fine. The natural man cannot please God. You are not pleasing him because the chief thing he calls you to do, which is to bow The heart to Him in repentance and to trust Him, you are still resisting. So stop. Look to Christ, trust Him. And you don't got to know it all and have it all figured out, but you need to know this right here the Lord Jesus is the only place that I will have eternal life. I need Him. And pray and call out to him and ask that he would save you. Look to Christ and bow the heart. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your ways. And as we just continue to see more of your works, more of what you are doing, we, we worship you, we glorify you. God, every one of us believers in the room, we just collectively say thank you for the progress that has come. It's not of our strength. It has been because you are merciful and you're kind. Thank you for the progress you've brought. Forgive us, O Lord, that there's not been more. And now help us in the days to come, O God, that we will truly grow in Christ. Father, please bless us as we leave. We pray that we will live out um, obedience, service, your purposes, O God, and give us your blessing. We ask this through Christ. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue Through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at I N D, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.